Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And this week, the Senate has worked unsuccessfully to get a bill that would repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the future of the bill and its amendments remain unclear. It's, it is uh, likely that Medicaid will be affected in some way. Uh, Indiana is one of 31 states that expanded Medicaid under the ACA in the form of HIP 2.0, and that now serves more than 400,000 Hoosiers. So today we're going to try to unpack some of these health care issues, and we have three guests with us in the studio, Dr. Rob Stone, the director and founder of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan, Representative Ed Clear, a Republican from New Albany, who is the former chair of the Indiana House Public Health Committee, and uh, David Gamage, who is a law professor at the IU Maurer School of Law. If you want to join us on the program, you can call us at 812-855-0811, that is, in Bloomington, or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we want to start the program today. It's, uh, this is a rapidly moving and uh, moving target, and a lot has happened since we all went to bed last night. So we're going to try to hear some voices that were really instrumental. We're going to start with uh, Mitch McConnell. You'll hear from John McCain, and you'll hear from Democrat Chuck Schumer. What we tried to accomplish for the American people was the right thing for the country. And our only regret tonight, our only regret, is that we didn't achieve what we had hoped to accomplish. We've been spinning our wheels on too many important issues because we keep trying to find a way to win without help from across the aisle. That's an approach that's been employed by both sides mandating legislation from the top down without any support from the other side with all the parliamentary maneuvers that requires. We're getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. I would say to my dear friend, the majority leader, we are not celebrating. We are relieved that millions and millions of people who would have been so drastically hurt by the three proposals put forward will at least retain their health care, be able to deal with pre-existing conditions. So that was, uh, again, Mitch McConnell was first, of course, the re Republican leader of the Senate, and then John McCain, who cast really the deciding vote in uh, not moving this forward, and he is a Republican as well, and Chuck Schumer from the Democratic Party. Um, so I want to ask... Uh, Ask David Gamage first for the, to sort of sort this out for us. I mean, where, where are we right now? It's hard to say where we are. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's where we were at 2.30 this morning. Right. Well, as opposed to yesterday, yesterday, at least at certain points during the day, it looked likely that something was going to pass the Senate, which then would have led us to conference. Still very uncertain what might have passed from both chambers. Today, the Senate's back to the drawing board. They may give up on the efforts for a while, forever. They may come up with a new package to try to pass. There might be a bipartisan compromise. There's considerable uncertainty in where we go from here. Mm -hmm. Rob Stone, you've been following us very closely. You have, your, you have a lot of very strong opinions about what, what should happen. What would you like to see happen next? Well, you know, the Republicans have said over and over again that Obamacare is failing. And I didn't hear again last night, but I've heard this week, uh, well, we'll just let it fail now. I think it's really important for people to understand that uh, 
when the Republicans say Obamacare is failing, what they, they're they not talking about the Medicaid expansion part of Obamacare. They're talking about the exchanges. And they're, what, to my mind, what they're really talking about is that our system of driven by and controlled by for-profit health insurance companies, that's what has failed. That's the issue that has failed in Obamacare because you cannot cover more people without having some kind of mandate. Uh, you cannot cover, take care of people who have pre-existing conditions. And how can you say you have a health care system where people with pre-existing conditions, which means where sick people can't get taken care of. That is an absurdity, and that's what the Republicans ran up against, I think. Okay. And, uh, Ed Claire, can you put this in some perspective for the state? Because the state, I mean, it's a, healthcare is such a complicated issue. And, you know, the state of Indiana, um, Mike, Governor Mike Pence always you know, talked a lot about how he, he, the state would never follow Obamacare. Yet there is HIP 2.0, which is sort of, it's a Medicaid expansion. So what, what does all this on the federal level mean for Hoosiers? Well, HIP 2.0 is Medicaid expansion. Uh, it's often been characterized as uh, something other than Medicaid expansion, but uh, it is uh, a type of Medicaid expansion. Uh, it is Medicaid. Uh, you know, Rob makes a great point. Uh, parts of Obamacare uh, are badly broken and, and have been broken uh, really since the beginning. Uh, but other parts uh, are working pretty well. Um, and maybe ironically, one of the uh, best examples is here in Indiana with our Medicaid expansion, our HIP 2.0 uh, program. That is, is uh, really an example of, um, of uh, how Obamacare is working. And uh, from a state perspective, uh, obviously what happens in Indiana is going to rely heavily on where Congress uh, goes from here. Um, you know, I, I, you could say we're at a crossroads, but I think we've really reached more of a T intersection. Um, you know, we, we were on a pathway with the two bills in Congress, the House bill and the Senate bill, uh, where we were about to uh, we were about to drive into a wall or into a field or something. And uh, what happened overnight, uh, I, I think, has has allowed us to stop at that intersection and uh, now decide uh, which way we're going. And let's not get hung up on left or right. Uh, you know, one way is, is toward more partisan posturing uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, behavior that's not going to lead to solutions. Uh, the other way is, uh, is toward solutions. It's toward uh, being constructive and working together, uh, even though it's going to be difficult and it's going to be painful um, and uh, certainly uh, will come at a political cost. So President Trump tweeted, Three Republicans and 48 Democrats let the American people down. As I said from the beginning, let Obamacare implode, then deal. Watch. So, per Professor Gamage, what what can, I guess, is this on a path to implosion, and what does that mean? So, absolutely not. And I take issue with the statements that the exchange portions of Obamacare are failing are similar terms. Now, I think there are deep problems of the Obamacare framework. I would love to see ideally bipartisan solutions to make the framework work, work a lot better, uh, all in favor of that. That said, in most geographies across the country, the exchanges are working reasonably well could do a lot better. And some geographies, they appear to be falling apart. And some other geographies, uh, Northern California, where I was from until recently, arguably the exchanges are working better than employer-sponsored insurance works. Uh, I don't know how long that can last. Uh, but without further congressional or dramatic executive branch action, I would expect more of the same, a mediocre, moving through where the exchanges continue to see price hikes uh, such that it's, they don't offer great insurance products for most Americans, but still offer reasonable insurance products, especially for those who have the federal subsidies or those who need it because they have really troubling health conditions. That's not the best of all worlds, but it's not the worst of all worlds either. My turn. Can I just ask yeah, a really sure, dumb question? My turn for the dumb question. Um, is it, wouldn't it be easier just to fix the things that are wrong with it than to say, let's blow it up and start over? So. Easier politically, easier. Uh, if you 
imagine the right political coalition, uh, I would be very much in favor of what might you might describe as a bipartisan, let's fix it, modify it, small improvements bill. I think that could get us to a much better world. Would that be the best of all possible? You know, there are those who think we really should move to single payer. We really should move to a much more market-based systems. In theory, a well-designed single-payer system or a well-designed, more pure market-based system could be better than what we have. Could we actually get to those ideals? I don't know. I think the easiest path forward would be let's fix the framework we have first, which I think with the right politics is very doable. Okay, I'm going to follow up with a simplistic question too about the exchanges. So, you know, how do you measure whether exchanges are failing or succeeding? What are the what are the, what are the measurements? The the basic measurements of these exchanges. So there's lots of ways one can do it. Uh, a metric I like to use is to compare the exchange insurance plans to what employers offer in the same geography. And as I said before, in some geographies, the exchange plans are just as good, maybe better than large employer offerings. In most geographies, not counting the additional subsidies to the exchanges, the exchange plans are quite a bit worse than what you can get if you have a large employer, uh, again, not counting employer-based subsidies. So counting subs all subsidies out what the actual cost of the insurance is. Uh, most geographies, again, the exchange plans are somewhat worse than you could get if you have a large employer, but not horrifically worse. And then there are a few geographies around the country where the exchanges are really falling apart. This is mostly sparsely populated rural areas. <laughs> okay, and then I, I, I think I may know, I've heard, I've read enough that I may know some, a little bit about what the answer might be to this, but so what, what would be a one or two fixes that would strengthen the exchanges? So the exchange plans are working sub-adequately because we're seeing some amount of adverse selection death spirals, which means healthier, not enough healthier people are buying the products, the insurance products, especially in the upper income groups, leaving the overall insured population too sick. There's basically two approaches to deal with this. One would be strengthen the individual mandate and other prods, requirements, tools to get healthy people onto the exchanges. The alternative approach would be to prop up the exchanges through monetary transfers, either increased tax credits to individuals who buy insurance, increased transfers to the insurance plans that cover the very sick. This can be through reinsurance, so the government helps with the sickest of people who buy exchange insurance. There's lots of ways to do it that have been discussed at the federal level that a number of states have been implementing. Uh, but certainly in most geographies, more is needed if the exchange plans are going to be more than mediocre. Mm -hmm. And this individual mandate is one of the huge sticking points and one of the things that the Republican Party at the national level has, has hated the most about Obamacare. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip over Rod and single, single payer for a minute and, and go back to Ed. I mean, we, uh, you know, David talks about the political realities of this situation. And, you know, John McCain, when he came on, he talked about how we're not getting anything done because people won't work together. You're in a legislature that is, you know, it's dominated by one party. But how, you know, how can you... You know, what, what would you say to people about the legislative process or the, you know, the, the governing process? What can be done to, to get people to see how to move forward with something that has part of both sides in it? I, mean, I wish I had the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think part of what has happened uh, in recent weeks is uh, members of Congress have um, uh, have, have begun to look at this more deeply and, and they've had advocacy groups and others uh, coming to them and talking about uh, what would happen to their constituents um, if, uh, uh, if one of these bills uh, were to pass. And um, faced with that reality, uh, it, it, has, um, uh, it has changed thinking and uh, uh, I think I think we have to continue to focus on uh, the facts, uh, not the not the politics or the um, 
we, we just we, we have to stay fact focused and uh, talk about uh, the realities of, of what has happened as a result of Obamacare and and where we go from here. You know, a, a lot of this um, uh, couldn't be undone, even even if there were uh, a clean repeal, right? I mean, if if there were a, a so-called repeal of Obamacare tomorrow. Uh, there are countless things that have happened over the last six or seven years uh, in response to Obamacare that can't be undone. You know, there are uh, hospitals that have made business decisions, uh, physician practices uh, that have made business decisions, individual providers, um, consumers, businesses, you know, uh, all kinds of stakeholders uh, who have done things. You know, you're not going to go back and undo a hospital merger or the sale of a physician practice that was uh, partially driven by Obamacare. These are things that have already happened, so we can't undo them. I don't know if I'm answering your question, no, Bob. No, that's good. No, it, you know, if I had it's the an answer, impossible question yeah, to answer. If I knew how to fix Congress, was, then... Yeah, right. You know. but, but, I mean, I, was, I, I think that some of us, we, a lot of us sit around, sit out here, and, you know, we're not inside of a government situation, and we're like, how, uh, you know, this is going to be a horrible thing to say, but how hard can it be to focus on <laughs> an answer for people? How can how, you know, rather than for a party or for an ideology, how hard can it be to try to come together and say, this is what's best for the people? R- really hard uh, part of it, and I don't want to sidetrack our discussion, but part of it, I think, is, is the uh, the, the, the high stakes uh, related to fundraising pressure. Uh, at the end of the day, a lot of this comes back for both parties to throwing out red meat to their base uh, and, uh, and using that to, uh, to, to raise the money that, that has become um, – that, that Washington uh, has become dependent on and, and uh, other levels uh, have become more dependent on. Mm-hmm. Senator McCain just issued a new statement saying the next step is to start fresh and do a bipartisan bill via regular orders. I guess that sort of gets to our question of could you, could you fix it and is there really an appetite for it? So I, I want to ask you, Dr. Soon, just how how are the exchanges working here in Indiana? We've talked sort of on a national level, but do you think HIP 2.0 is working in the exchanges as well? Oh, I think HIP 2.0 in Indiana, uh, at least through 2016 and probably through 2017. Uh, Excuse me, the exchanges are HIP 2.0. Let's talk about the exchanges first. Yeah, the exchanges, (laughs) yeah. So uh, I think the exchanges are are working reasonably well in Indiana. You know, I I, I think, as as I said at the opening, the exchanges keep the private insurance industry in the mix, and I think that's there are there are contradictions there that we'll never uh, really be able to solve satisfactorily, to my mind. But the exchanges have worked pretty well here. But you know, we've heard that MD Wise is not going to offer exchanges, got not going to be in the exchanges next year, and they've been a, a a a solid piece of the exchanges. So the Indiana exchanges for 2018 are looking very worrisome, and and to me, one of the great tragedies that is playing out on the back of the stage uh, while the front of the stage is is all this drama in, in Washington, D.C., is that people, both who have exchange coverage right now and who have Medicaid coverage right now in Monroe County, people who I know, people who talk to me, are scared to death. What is going to happen next year and the year after? What's going to happen the next few years? But what's going to happen in January of 2018? And so that's that's a great tragedy um, because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we think that Medicaid, HIP 2.0, is going to be okay in 2018, although it may have some new restrictions put on it, work restrictions. Um, but we're really worried about the exchanges in 2018 from the people we know have already said they're not going to offer uh, coverage and more could follow. Um, so mm-hmm. that's what I'm most worried about. One of the things that Governor Holcomb said this week is he wants the states to have more control over this. So I'm just, Representative Clear, I mean, what do you think the state would do if, if given more opportunity to, to, to rework health care here? Well, I, I think uh, it's always good to um, uh, to allow the states to innovate, and that's what we've seen here in Indiana. Uh, I'm sure there are more that the, there's more we could do, um, 
but Indiana already has a model that, that I know a lot of other states uh, would like to follow or, or uh, would probably do well uh, to follow. Uh, I think the, the challenge when you start talking about uh, giving the states flexibility uh, is that um, uh, it not become uh, an excuse for simply reducing funding uh, from the federal government. And that, that, that's been kind of the, um, the bait and switch that, uh, that I think we've seen lately. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, about flexibility. Uh, block granting is a popular term. Um, you know, if, if, if block granting uh, means you get uh, a little bit or even a lot more flexibility, but the amount of money you're receiving is frozen, then your ability to innovate is going to be limited. Um, you know, one, one of the things we have to remember, and again, it's important to separate the discussion about the exchanges versus the discussion about uh, Medicaid, uh, which is HIP 2.0 here in Indiana. Um, but uh, um, most, of, most Medicaid spending, uh, you know, isn't on Medicaid expansion. Uh, most Medicaid spending uh, in Indiana and elsewhere is on seniors and people with disabilities. And that's not likely to change. So these proposals uh, in Congress would have disproportionately harmed seniors and people with disabilities. And uh, so when we talk about block granting or capping Medicaid spending, uh, and, and allowing states to innovate with the idea that, that somehow we're going to make it up, uh, you know, that the innovation is going to overcome the, overcome the, uh, the, the freeze in, in uh, funding or the effective reduction in funding, it's just not realistic. And just for, uh, just to, to, again, clarify that, because um, I heard Leslie um, from Stonebelt, Leslie Green from Stonebelt, talk about how block grant funding would really hurt people, the clients of Stonebelt. And just explain that a little more clearly. So right now, they get money how versus this block grant funding, which would, would have a cap on it. Can well, you- they yeah, I mean, right now it's, it's a, a state federal program. So uh, I think in most Medicaid programs, and uh, maybe somebody will correct me, but the, the state is responsible uh, for uh, about two-thirds, and uh, the federal government picks up the, uh, the remaining third. Mm-hmm. And um, am I correct in my numbers? Is that for the traditional Medicaid yeah. program, right? And, right, right. and of course, I'm not the talking about expansion, expansion yeah. which is very different. Yeah, yeah we're still at uh, what 95 percent now mm-hmm. on uh, on the expansion match, um, and I think that's something that that will inevitably receive a lot of scrutiny. That was always uh, likely to receive scrutiny because of that very high match. But um, historically, you know, it's been about a two thirds to one third uh, state federal program, and um, uh, it, it hasn't been arbitrarily uh, capped or limited. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So the one third, if the uh, if the the federal government's portion were uh, more than that cap, you know, they wouldn't. They would only go to the cap. They wouldn't go to the one third anymore. So, yeah, I think uh, so the, that balance the, could shift. The, the block granting model would you know would have the federal government coming up with some sort of a formula and, and saying this is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how much you get, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you have some more freedom with it, but this is how much you get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as your uh, population changes or as the needs of that population change, uh, you know, there wouldn't necessarily be more funding uh, attached to that. I was actually at Stonebelt uh, just uh, maybe two or three weeks ago mm-hmm. and uh, uh, met with, uh, with a lot of their folks and heard some of the stories. And, uh, again, this is the population that would be disproportionately impacted. Mm-hmm. Rob? I just had one other thing. You know, how m- the words you frame things in make such a big difference. And you talk about, well, states would like to have flexibility in their Medicaid program. And that's, when you frame it that way, that sounds just great. When you, you can also reframe that as, okay, so states are going to have to increase their own administrative overhead to come up with new ideas and reinvent the wheel. And there's part of me that says, actually, McDonald's may have it right that one size does fit all uh, and that you can actually sell hamburgers all across the country that are pretty uniform and that people's health care needs, you know, I'm just making a point that sometimes the idea of innovation in Medicaid, um, I think, has a little dark side to it, too, that we don't think about. Yeah. So just to half-heartedly defend uh, the Republicans in Congress, uh, 
first, states already have a great deal of flexibility if they want it. And what's going on at the federal level isn't about flexibility. What partly is going on at the federal level is an understanding that healthcare costs in our country are growing unsustainably. This is a long-run problem, not a short-run problem. Medicaid is a small portion of this problem. Medicare is a much bigger portion of this problem. But health, we already spend close to 20% of our economic resources on healthcare. Very few individuals want to spend 20% of their own economic resources on healthcare. Most healthcare spending in this country is hidden from the beneficiaries of this spending, and it's increasing rapidly as the size of our economy. If we look decades into the future, if we look 50 to 60 years in the future, if something doesn't change, healthcare becomes more than the entire economy. Obviously, something's going to change. I don't think the proposals Congress was considering are a good way to get to that change. But that doesn't mean we could ignore the medium to long run problem of unsustainable healthcare cost growth. Gotcha. We're going to take a break. We, uh, we've hit our halfway mark. We're talking about healthcare, a variety of healthcare issues, but mainly we're talking about what's been going on in Washington, D.C. in the last few days. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And today we're talking about issues in health care that are affecting uh, Hoosiers and everyone throughout the country. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Rob Stone, the director and founder of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan, David Gamage, a law professor at the IU Maurer School of Law, and Representative Ed Clear, from a Republican from New Albany, who is in the Indiana legislature. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 here locally or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And we'd like to hear from you if you have any questions at all. Sarah? So during the break, we were talking a little bit about HIP 2.0, and it's obviously different than the federal Medicaid program in some way. So Representative Clear, do you want to explain that just briefly here? Sure. It, you know, first of all, it's not that different from the the so-called traditional Medicaid program. I guess um, the work requirement in particular is one thing I was thinking. Yeah, the, I mean, the work requirement is something new, and um, uh, you know, I believe that has just been approved, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, but still, it's it's not that different from a so-called uh, traditional Medicaid program, and we've heard a lot uh, since the advent of of HIP 2.0. Uh, th that it isn't Medicaid um, when it really is. And we've heard that, um, that what makes it work uh, are the personal responsibility features and the consumer-driven health care design. And um, those are both great in their own right, but they're not what makes it work. Uh, what makes it work, I think, uh, are two things. First of all, uh, it pays Medicare rates for Medicaid services. So uh, what that means is uh, it, it pays higher rates to doctors and other providers, uh, which this isn't rocket science, uh, has the effect of attracting more providers. So uh, one of the things that makes our program superior to that of uh, some other states is uh, uh, it's easier to get in to see the doctor in Indiana because more doctors participate uh, in the program because they can build a business model on it. Uh, you know, we've... Uh, paid artificially low rates for Medicaid for um, 
for many years, and uh, uh, it hasn't been sustainable. And uh, HIP 2.0 addresses that, I think, in a very progressive fashion. I think that's also where some of the pressure is now uh, when we talk about the future of HIP 2.0. Uh, I'm hearing uh, about more and more pressure uh, on those rates, and uh, you know, if if we see uh, rates start to go down, uh, we'll see fewer providers participating. The other thing that makes uh, HIP 2.0 work is its uh, uh, managed care design. So we have these uh, these managed care entities, four of them right now, uh, that provide the coverage and uh, they receive a, a capitated rate. They get a, a set amount of money for each participant, and uh, they only make money if they find ways to uh, reduce usage and keep people healthy. And uh, managed care is a whole separate discussion, but uh, our, our plan design, our program design here in Indiana uh, is, uh, is pretty thoughtful and it's working pretty well. And you said there, how many, how many people on HIP? About four hundred thousand, and that expanded by from about what thirty thousand before thirty or forty. It was about a tenfold increase. Uh, the original hip population uh, kind of went up and down uh, based on various factors, but uh, but yeah, it's gone. Uh, uh, the original hip population was about ten percent uh, at its peak of, of what the uh, population is today. Okay. So when we're, when we're talking about the changes going, the debate at the federal level, it's those people in Indiana who would be affected, right? Well, not, not just those people. I mean, certainly the marketplace, uh, you know, folks who are receiving coverage through the marketplace as well, which yeah, is a, okay. an additional right. population. And I would argue that it's everyone who's affected. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think uh, uh, David raises a great point about the uh, cost of health care and, and uh, um, how out of control that is. Uh, I've said from the beginning that uh, um, fundamentally you could look at Obamacare as uh, as addressing two areas. One was access to care, and it did a pretty good job in the short term of improving access to care. Uh, what it didn't do a good job of addressing was the second area, which is the cost of care, the, the rising out of control cost of care. And by not effectively addressing that, uh, you know, that cost of care threatens to undermine uh, access to care and everything else. So, you know, whether people are receiving coverage through HIP or through the marketplace, uh, we should all care uh, about what happens here because it's going to spill over and affect all other areas of health insurance and health care. And let's also not forget that Indiana ranks very poorly uh, among states when it comes to overall health status. And uh, this has been an opportunity from the beginning uh, to address something that affects workforce and quality of life and uh, lots of other issues here in Indiana, and that is our, our health. We uh, were uh, 41st in the country, uh, according to one survey, in overall health status for several years, and uh, we moved up to, to 39th this year. Uh, so we have a long way to go. All right, we're going to let the, our listeners sort of guide us for the next few minutes because we've got three calls here on the line. So let's go to John first. John's from Bloomington. John? Hi. Uh, President Trump has repeatedly threatened to sabotage the ACA system by deliberately mismanaging it. And I'm interested in what suggestions the panelists have for how private citizens can, if at all, make sure he doesn't do that and what i hope you will the suggestions i hope you have are in addition to calling your representatives because my republican senator and my republican congressman are not very responsive on this issue thank you all right thanks john anybody have any suggestions david so i would say uh, a lot of damage potentially is being done by the administration's statements and actions how much damage remains to be seen. But there's a lot that state governments can do to counteract and repair this damage at the state level. I've written some on this. Explaining will would take a little while. Uh, so if you want to give me 10 minutes, I could start. But uh, I would say there's a lot that could be done at the state level. So to those like the caller, uh, John, I think his name was, mm-hmm. who feel they're not getting an answer from their federal level representatives, uh, I'd suggest try seeing if your state level representatives are more receptive and even just spreading the message, communicating and getting it on the agenda that the exchanges aren't just a federal problem. 
these states, many states are taking action to stabilize and improve their exchanges. These actions seem to be doing a lot, and there's a lot more that can be done. So uh, if state governments also take responsibility for their exchanges, uh, that's another lever point. Okay. Anybody have any other suggestions? Well, I, I think you can't discount calling your members of Congress, your uh, representative and, and your senators, um, based on the politics. It's, it's too important, and this goes back to moving past the politics. I mean, it, it may be difficult. They may not be receptive at first, but these are intelligent people who do care. And uh, I think the more they hear from constituents and the more uh, constituents um, – uh, reframe it outside of politics and start to talk about individual experiences and what coverage means to them and to their family and to their friends and, uh, you know, share the stories and, and, and get past the politics. Right. I would just add, um, you know, one of the things I do besides being a doctor is that I um, am the director of a grassroots um, organizing uh, outfit that is statewide. And so, um, you know, the the situation right now is that a lot of the people who are being who are most at risk of being hurt, uh, the the Medicaid expansion people, and a lot of the people on the exchanges, um, may be willing to change their votes uh, next time there are elections coming up, and uh, so I think reaching out, but sometimes it may take more than that, and actually going to the streets. Um, you know, last Monday. We had a, a rally here in, in Bloomington. We managed to get on the front page of the paper, uh, and we had 140 people there. Um, and I think those sorts of things do make a difference. If you, if, if, if you, you John, the listener, is, is willing to take a step a little bit further out there than just writing and calling. All right. We have Ann on the phone from Salisbury. Ann? Uh, yes. My question is, what studies have been done uh, to show the benefits of a single payer? Rob, I think that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ann, for that question. Well, you know, the, when you talk about single payer, first of all, I've got to clarify the terminology. So single payer is the same thing as saying expand and improve Medicare to cover everybody. It's the same thing as universal health care, maybe not precisely synonymous, but very close. But whether you say single payer, expand Medicare to cover everybody, universal Medicare, uh, universal health care, the idea is that we've got to figure out some way to cover everybody. And it's not like... The rest of the developed world hasn't figured out ways to do this. There are various different ways to do it. My just to be try to keep this really brief. Um, my my thinking is that the Medicare program that we have today, which is a universal single payer program that covers everybody age 65 and above, and I'm 65 now, so I'm on Medicare, so I know of what I speak, as well as having been a doctor for almost 40 years, I've taken care of a lot of Medicare patients too. Um, Medicare is not perfect, uh, but it runs about roughly two, maybe as much as 4% overhead compared to Anthem, which runs 18% overhead. And um, there are a lot of studies that have shown that uh, Medicare, if we expanded the age of Medicare, maybe dropped it to 55 from 65, maybe dropped it all the way to birth, um, that we could cover everybody and pay for it. Now, that's the policy side of this. Um, uh, as, uh, but the, uh, the political side of it is very, is very different. And obviously, this would be a big, big change for us. But keep in mind that other countries have done it. They spend a fraction of what we do, and they have better health care outcomes, better infant mortality, better life expectancy, and on and on. So where does the U.S. rank in things like you know, life expectancy and well, we rank at the bottom of, uh, of our peer group called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. Uh, we rank at the bottom pretty much. Uh, uh, and maybe we rank, still rank above Turkey, which is in the OECD. But we rank at the bottom pretty much in, in, in these things like uh, life expectancy, infant mortality, and, and the most um, – uh, and there's a very sophisticated, which I won't go into great detail, way to measure healthcare performance uh, called mortality amenable to care, uh, and uh, which basically looks at people who have diseases like hypertension, diabetes, and how well, how do they survive? And we rank at the bottom. Any way you cut it, as much as we would love to believe that 
The U.S. has the best healthcare system in the world. Our performance is very poor, and yet everyone does agree we've got the most expensive healthcare in the world. Mm-hmm. David, do you have any any reaction to single payer with, or any different take than Dr. Stone? I think on many dimensions, various single payer systems that other countries in the world have adopted perform better than the U.S. healthcare system. Not all dimensions. That said, I'm wary of the notion that we can get here what other countries have adopted. One, we just spend a lot more. Prices are much higher here. Compensation across the medical profession is a lot higher. Uh, moving to some of the better systems along these metrics would be cutting pay for many influential voters and interest groups. Doesn't mean we can't get there. Uh, but there's also the long-term problem that Medicare's financing is unsustainable. Now. It's not clear to me how that changes as we grow Medicare. Maybe that gives us more political will to deal with it. But I'd like to see Medicare be given the power to deny payment for treatments that don't meet cost-benefit tests and to take other cost-cutting measures that every other country in the world that has anything like universal system has adopted, along with at least expanding Medicare. And yet I see essentially no support for that, these measures on either side of the aisle. I think we have to be careful to get past the scary terms, too. You know, yeah. sometimes when we start talking about single payer, uh, it just degenerates into, uh, you know, you're for socialism or you're against socialism, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Uh, it's incredible, uh, you know, when you turn on the TV and you see a, a member of Congress or somebody else who says uh, that they uh, uh, oppose socialized medicine in any form uh, but don't touch Medicare. Uh, or the VA. Yeah, or the VA. <laughs> or, um, you know, uh, people who say that they, uh, they, they want to see Obamacare repealed but uh, leave the ACA alone. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> right. the, the terminology is very problematic. And I think whether we're talking about single payer or whatever, you know, again, we need to come back to talking about the facts. What, what you know, what, what should we be talking about, not the um, uh, terms that, that scare people? One follow-up for you, Rob, um, before I get to our caller. Uh, and that – has to do with the overhead number, overhead percentages that you mentioned, because those are pretty dramatic: eighteen percent for Anthem and two to four percent for for Medicare. But how do how do those overhead figures um, how do they relate to like other countries that have similar systems? Is the overhead there two to four percent, or do they have? Right. So the the overall Canadian system runs about six percent overhead. Our overall entire system runs about thirty percent overhead. Um, so I mean, it's not just that we have uh, exp- insurance companies that are that are efficient, inefficient from an economic one economic viewpoint, but also uh, it creates uh, doctors' offices have these expensive billing systems. Hospitals have you know hundreds of people uh, just doing the billing. Our entire system is this patchwork quilt of coverage. Um, I want to turn things back just a touch, though, toward, towards Indiana and here and now. Um, and, uh, you know, single-payer Medicare for all remains off in a, in a distant future, um, which I think we may be closer to than we've ever been in my lifetime. But um, Medicaid in Indiana is something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, I was involved in a, a very active grassroots campaign to try to um, convince Governor Pence to, first of all, propose the HIP 2.0 and then to, uh, you know, to, to see that whole process through. And to me, uh, you know, protecting our current Medicaid system, whether it's HIP 2.0, 3.0, or traditional Medicaid, is, is really important because it not only means lives saved in our state, but it means hospi- rural hospitals in Indiana being able to stay open. Hospitals are often the largest employer in a lot of t- uh, small towns. Uh, there's all the, all the ramifications right here in Indiana of figuring out how we're going to protect. Uh, and don't forget also that there's still half a million uninsured people in Indiana. We've, we've got nowhere near full coverage in this state. All right. We're going to go to Valerie from Owen County. Valerie? Uh, yeah, hi. I've actually been waiting several years to talk to Dr. Stone, but because I don't have email, I've never figured out how to get a hold of you. So I thought I would take this opportunity to just run a few things by you. Um, I feel that we're definitely kindred spirits because I totally think that a single-payer program similar to what most other industrialized countries have managed to do is the answer. 
I think, in two words that you can pretty much sum up what's wrong with our problem, and that being profit and greed, or perhaps three words, profit, greed, and politics. However, there's a couple of questions specifically that I heard you recently on national radio talking about health care and, you know, this whole idea of Medicare for all, finger-payer, I'm on Medicare, and I've been on Medicare for three years, and I know you said it was working great for you. Well, it really isn't working for me, and I want to tell you why. First of all, there are substantial... Well, first of all, they take a big hunk of my Social Security to pay for the Part B. So there, I don't think that people in the U.K. and Canada get, you know, pay for their health coverage. Second of all, there are substantial co-pays and deductibles and all that. So the solution for many people uh, who don't want to pay possibly very substantial co-pays and uh, deductibles is to have a supplemental policy. Now, once you get a supplemental policy, it ceases to be a single-payer system. Okay, so I don't see, based on that, why this Medicare for all people equate with a single-payer system. In my case, being very low income, despite all my college degrees, um, I can't afford a supplemental policy, nor can I afford to take the risk of no ceiling on co-pays with regular Medicare. So I opted for a Medicare Advantage plan, which again is private insurance, so then again, it's not a single-payer program, and the reason I opted for that is because they do have a ceiling on out-of-pocket expenses, and the co-pays for my needs, I can see my primary care provider with no co-pay, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, um, I still get co-pays, and I recently spent five days in the Bloomington Hospital, and now I'm facing you know, almost $1,000 in uh, co-pays, and you're probably thinking, doesn't she know about the extra help stuff? Yes, I do. But, because I've managed to keep a Valerie, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get, okay, okay. get to well, a point here. Yeah. There are many people who are on Medicare, like me, who are still facing financial hardship, and I guess it really puzzles me when I hear somebody as knowledgeable as Dr. Stone say, yeah, it's a single-payer program, you know, universal coverage, you know, it's not. All right. Dr. Stone, yes. I'll I'll try to answer this pretty quickly. Uh, You know, the the actual uh, full slogan that I support is expanded and improved Medicare for all, and I haven't really emphasized that here today, but um, the idea is that I, I agree completely. Medicare has way too many copays and deductibles and out-of-pocket expenses. Uh, it is still way, way better than uh, uh, than a lot of other coverage you can get uh, and a lot cheaper for an individual than pretty much anything else you can get. But I think Medicare needs to be uh, improved as well as expanded uh, because I agree with you completely. Uh, and there, there, there are a lot of out-of-pocket expenses with Medicare and that once you start getting into having to choose between Medicare Advantage plans and Medicare supplements, you start getting the kinds of choices that actually people don't welcome. What people really want is, is coverage, and they, and they want to choose which doctor they go to. They don't want to choose which health insurance supplement they buy. Okay, 30 seconds, Valerie, if you have a follow-up. All right, I guess she's gone. Okay, so we only have about three minutes to go, so we've really run through this program. Sarah, do you have any last question, or I'm just going to give a general question? Well, guys, so, so, Dr. Stone, I was thinking maybe you could answer. If you're a hospital or a doctor in this situation, are you leery at all of taking a patient who might have insurance either through HIP 2.0 or through the exchanges because you're worried about getting paid? Is that is that an issue at all in all of this uncertainty? It's it's never been an issue for me, but that's more a uh, a, a philosophical thing. You know, I worked 28 years of my career in the emergency room, so we just took care of everybody, and you know, never questioned people what their coverage was before we took care of them. Now I do um, hospice and palliative care; it's the same thing. But I know a lot of physicians are worried about it. But I'm 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 more worried about the perspective of patients who are. Um, 
worried about how they're going to pay for things. You know, medical bills are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in this country. Uh, and within personal bankruptcy, the number one, uh, within medical bankruptcy, the number one cause of medical bankruptcy is a cancer diagnosis. Uh, and most of these people declaring bankruptcy with cancer actually had some kind of insurance uh, at some point uh, along the way. And so uh, the tragedies real are, really are that people face for instance, cancer, not only have to deal with the medical and emotional issues of, of cancer, but they also have to deal with financial ruin. Well, in uh, our last couple of minutes, uh, I wanted each of you to just, if there's one thing, I know it's very hard to do, but if there's one thing that, one main point that you hope comes out of this conversation, this discussion, what would it be? It, well, People need to start working together, and, and we have to move past the politics. Uh, you know, Dr. Stone makes uh, a great point uh, uh, when he talks about the ER, um, because uh, you know the, the people who are receiving coverage today, um, regardless of whether they continue to receive coverage, regardless of, of the quality of that coverage, they're still going to show up at the ER uh, or somewhere. And uh, you know, as we hopefully try to work together, we should be looking for uh, ways to, to create a system that uh, reduces overall costs and improves uh, outcomes. And uh, th these people are with us. They're not going anywhere. Uh, it's a question of are they going to be served in a, uh, a more appropriate, less costly setting, or are they going to be served later uh, when their situation is more acute? in a, uh, a costlier and, and uh, a less appropriate setting. 30 seconds. Uh, I think the way forward is ideally bipartisan. I hope Senator McCain was serious when he called for bipartisan efforts. I call for lawmakers on both sides and also at the state level. There we have deep problems in our health care in our country, but health care is complicated. It's hard to solve these problems through slogans. We need real well thought out solutions and bipartisanship is the best way to get there. Okay, Rob, 30 seconds. Well, I'm going to open a whole new can of worms, which is that um, if we're going to address our opioid crisis, it requires a strong Medicaid program as one of the integral pieces of it. And so it's still another reason why uh, we've got to have Medicaid strong in Indiana, and we've got to figure out, continue figuring out how to get everybody covered in this whole country. All right. Thank you to Dr. Rob Stone, David Gamage, and Representative Ed Clear. For producer Angelo Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmeyer, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.